Hey, and welcome to the Vintage Church at Buffalo podcast. Here you'll find a teaching for your life from God's Word by Pastor Wes Aram. So, let's get to it. The resurrection story started with the end. It was Friday, and Jesus was hanging on a cross. It looked like the end. Everybody thought it was the end. His body was shredded from the beating and the scourging that he took. A crown of thorns dug into his head, blood flowed down his face. He didn't even look like a member of the human race. His hands were spiked into the the crossbar and his feet spiked into the one that uh, was lodged into the ground. And there he hung between heaven and earth. Every breath was a brutal struggle. And the people were there mocking him, jeering, insulting, throwing dust at him, spitting at him, cursing him. And he was not alone because there was two other thieves that were crucified that day, one on either side. That's why often when we see uh, a picture of the, of the crucifixion, we see the three crosses because there was three men that were crucified that day. And both of those thieves at one point were casting slurs and insults at Jesus as well. The book of Matthew chapter 27 says this, In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. But they hung there for several hours. And something happened to one of the thieves. The gospel writer Luke records the event for us. Luke 23 says this, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can you picture it? There Jesus is. Every breath is an excruciating struggle. And the one thief rebuking the other thief on the other side of the cross. And then he turns and he fixes his gaze on Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus turns and looks at him. And their eyes meet. And it's as if Time stands still in that moment. And the thief looks deep into Jesus' blood-spattered eyes and he sees what absolutely stunned him. He expected to see judgment and hatred and condemnation, but what he saw was forgiveness. And he looked into the eyes of Jesus and he knew that is what he needed. That is what he wanted. That thief, he didn't know a whole lot of theology, but this is what he did know. He did know that Jesus was a king that his kingdom was not of this world, and that this king had the ability to take even the worst, even the most messed up, even the most tragic life, and usher it into his kingdom. And that knowledge was enough for that thief. And so in that moment, with his words and with his heart and with his belief and with his trust, he reached out to Jesus. And in the most excruciating, unlikely place, Jesus told and welcomed a common thief into the uncommon riches of heaven. It was an incredible moment. The story continues. John records it for us in his gospel. John chapter 19 says this, Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The end. 
At least that's what it seemed. That's what it looked like when he hung there dead on the cross. That's what it looked like when they took his body off the cross and they wrapped it up. It's what it looked like when they laid him in the tomb and they rolled that stone in front of it. That's what it looked like. It was over in the end. That's what it looked like. But three days later, we found out, the world found out, history found out that it was just the beginning. Jesus came out of that tomb. Breath fills his lungs. Life filled his body. He walked out of that tomb. He left that tomb empty. And because of that, it changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. In fact, all of Christianity rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have it in front of you, uh, take a look at verse 14. It says this, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, empty, vain. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul says, listen, if you're only hoping in Jesus for this life and the resurrection didn't happen, then you are to be pitied. We are to be pitied more than anybody else. Why? Because we believed in a false hope. We've put our life, we banked our life on something that is going to, in the end, utterly be worthless if the resurrection didn't happen. But he goes on to say, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. But... He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. It changes everything. See, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if there's no resurrection, if we're here today celebrating something that didn't happen, then guess what? This world, this broken world, it's all there is. And your story and my story ends six feet under in a dark grave where everyone will forget anything you ever did. No hope, no meaning, and death has the final word. That's encouraging, isn't it? But, because Christ has been raised from the dead, if the resurrection is real, then this broken world is not our home, not even close. In fact, that home in heaven, for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, that home is more certain and more sure than the one we live in now. And because we have the God of the universe walking with us, that means what we do here matters. We have hope. We have meaning. And death does not have the final word. Life has the final word. Victory has the final word. Paul says, he continues in 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 56 says this, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came out of the grave, we have hope. And for those of us who have Christ in our lives, we have meaning, and death is not the final word. We have a home in heaven. That's what the thief realized, and that's what each one of us can realize. Now listen, it's no surprise that today a lot of people are making fun of Christians who gather to celebrate Easter, to celebrate the resurrection. They're saying it never happened. Hey, you know what? In the first century, the same thing was true. They didn't believe it happened either. But there are at least three absolutely convincing pieces of evidence that argue for the fact and the reality 
of the resurrection, that Jesus did come out of the tomb. First, the tomb was empty. Listen, you go to any other religious leader's grave, you know what you're going to find? If you dig it up, you're going to find a body. Every other religious leader of every other belief system who died, still in the grave. They're in the grave. You're going to find them there. You go to Jesus' tomb, he's not there. That tomb is empty. Listen, even when it happened in the first century, even Jesus' adversaries, they never argued the fact that there was an empty tomb. They never, they never debated that. It was clear. It was obvious. There's no body. The tomb is empty. The second piece of evidence is the eyewitnesses. You know, in a court of law, you get a couple eyewitnesses. That's pretty good. The Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, he starts to list eyewitnesses, and he says there's even hundreds of them that have seen Jesus Christ. And then he says this, most of whom are still alive. You know why he said that? Because he was telling the readers of his a letter to the Corinthian church, he was saying, listen, you don't believe me. I want you to go and investigate it. I want you to check it out. I want you to talk to these people. There's hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus walking around resurrected. Go take a look at them and ask them about it. The eyewitnesses are there, not just one or two or three, hundreds of them. Go investigate. That's one of the things I love about Christianity and I love about the Bible because the Bible is a book that says, Come with your questions. Come with your doubts. Investigate. God wants us to know that we can know the truth. There were eyewitnesses. And the third piece of, uh, of evidence that argues for the, the reality of the resurrection is the lives of the disciples that were radically changed. Listen, after Friday, after Jesus was crucified on the cross and he was dead, they all huddled in a room, closed the doors, locked the doors, closed and barred the windows for fear of the Jews that they would be attacked. And so they huddled as cowards. But after the resurrection, three days later, they became bold, bold leaders, outspoken leaders, most of which were martyred for their belief in Christianity. And here's the point. Ready? You miss everything else I say. Don't miss this. The story of Jesus in the resurrection changes our lives, transforms our lives because it's true. That's why our lives can be different. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that Christianity is real. And that the story of Jesus is real. That he really did come to live. He was born of a virgin, put on human flesh. He lived his life here sinlessly. The life we should have lived. He lived the perfect life. And then he died on the cross paying for our sins. Say, Wes, what was that all about? Well, it's very clear. You and I, we were born into this life as sinners. The Bible tells us that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Everybody, that word all, that means everybody. Nobody gets out of this thing. There's no exceptions to the rule. Everyone is a sinner. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, of his standard. His standard is perfect. That's why when people say, well, my good will outweigh my bad. You know what? Good is not the standard. Perfect is the standard. You can't make up for perfect. You do one wrong thing, done. Guess what? We've all done wrong things. Okay, done. Every one of us, every one of us have sinned. You know, we come into this world as a sinner. You know how you know that by personal experience? You know that. How many of you in this room are parents? Can I see your hands? All right. We got a lot of parents. All right. We got one right there. Okay. How many of you have ever had to teach your kid how to be bad? Anybody? Anybody teach them how to be bad? You had to sit them down and go, you're such a good little squirrel. I got to teach you how to do wrong things. No. Never happened. Never happened. You know why? My parents didn't do that with me either. You know why? Because I did bad all on my own. I was pretty good at it at certain times. And I bet you were as well. Why? Because the Bible's true. We're sinners. But here's where it gets real serious. That sin 
As we get older, it's sinners by birth, sinners by choice. And as we continue to sin and choose our way to say, I don't need God, I'm going to be in charge of my own life. Sin is the eternal and ultimate hate crime against God. And it separates us from God. And if nothing happens in our lives to fix that sin problem, we're going to walk off this planet separated from God forever in a place of justice and judgment called hell and payment for our sin. Because the payment for sin, according to Romans 6, 23, is death. Eternal separation from God forever. That is not what God wants for you or for me. And so he sent his son, Jesus. He came, he lived, he died on the cross. Why? Because the penalty for sin is death. Someone had to pay it. Listen, another sinner can't save another sinner. A drowning man can't save a drowning man. You need a lifeguard. You need a rescuer. You need a savior. That's what we need. We needed a savior. And so Jesus became that savior on the cross. He took our sins. John 3.16, then, after the resurrection, it became a living reality for you and for me. One of my favorite verses and the most famous verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world. You, stick your name in there. For God so loved you. Don't ever get used to that. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, don't ever get used to that. Ask God to help you not get used to it. Man, I ask God to help me not get used to it, that he loves me. I bring nothing to the table but my sin and my garbage. And by the way, neither do you, right? And yet he says, I love you. For God so loved me, you, the world, that he what? He gave his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. So that whoever, wide open invitation, man, there are no guardrails, there are no exceptions, wide open here. From the thief on the cross all the way down to you and me. Whoever believes in him, believes in him, not believes about him. A lot of people believe that Jesus was a historical figure, maybe a nice teacher. That's not what that means. To believe in means you surrender, you commit. You say, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus, come into my life. I give my life to you. I trust my life to you. I've seen what I can do with my life. Jesus, I'm ready to see what you can do with my life. And you, you commit your life to Christ. Just like that thief, you reached out to him and you say, Jesus, come into my life. Whoever believes in him will not perish will not be separated from God forever in a place of justice and judgment called hell, but will have eternal life. Eternal life is a home in heaven. It's a relationship with God, and it starts the moment we invite Christ into our lives. And that is a reality because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, he conquered hell, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered the grave, he kept his promise. And he offers salvation to you and to me, a relationship with himself. So when we invite Christ into our lives, a resurrection changes our eternity forever. But it also transforms our lives here and now. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What is that? That's a word picture. First fruits. When you go out to, in the spring to an apple orchard and you see an apple tree and you see that first apple, that's a first fruit. And that, that apple tells us not only what kind of tree it is, but that there are more coming. All right? Jesus' resurrection is a first fruit. It means other resurrections are coming. That's you and that's me once we place our faith in Christ. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So that means that when we leave this earth, in death, we're going to step into a place that even on the cross, Jesus called paradise. There's no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. We get to be with him forever and no more devil to attack us. And here's the thing, that reality, knowing that, changes how we live here and now. You know how, how that is? 
Because once you know that this world is not all there is, that there is a forever life coming that God is preparing for you, that even when you get hit, and even when I get hit with circumstances that are hard, that are difficult, that are ugly, even when people try to hurt us, guess what? None of that, none of that can touch our eternity. None of that can change our eternity. None of that has any play into our eternity in terms of our security. It can't do it. And when we know that, we live differently. We live differently. We don't bank our lives on this world. We don't get caught up in all the stuff that this culture says, this is what you've got to have to feel important and be, be significant and blah, blah, blah. We have the word of our God that says, I love you and you are mine and I'm going to walk with you and be with you and I'm going to take you to heaven with me forever. That, my friends, should change how we live because the tomb was empty, our lives can be full forever. So, Two things as I close. One, if you're here today and you do not know for sure that you're going to make heaven, you've never truly invited Christ into your life. I don't mean, hey, uh, Wes, I've gone to church. I've been a good person. That's great. That's not what's going to get you into heaven. Getting you into heaven is, is surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, can I tell you, on the authority of God's word, according to Acts 17, that is why God arranged the details of your life to put you here right now because he wants you to have one more chance. One more chance. Listen, we're not guaranteed it tomorrow. I did a real, yesterday I did a funeral of a really good friend of mine. And I want to tell you what I told them. I said, everybody is going to have a day like today. Everyone's going to walk off this planet. Linda, she was ready for her day. Are you ready for yours? Because you can be. You can be. You can be ready for that day because we're all going to have them. If you're here and you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, that's why God brought you here. So that you can make sure. So you can give your life to Jesus Christ. So you can turn your life over to Him. If you're here and you say, Wes, I, I'm ready, man. I've invited Christ into my life. Yes. Then can I tell you what the resurrection does for you? Not only does it help us to live differently and transform our lives. The resurrection, listen. The resurrection is God's fulfilled promise that He does what He says He will do. He keeps His word. He keeps His word to you tells us that God can do what man can't do, that God can do the impossible, that he can bring dead things to life. Amen. Maybe you're in a situation right now and you're like, my life is just not looking great. Guess what? God says your life is far from over. You follow me, it's just getting started because I can bring dead things to life. God keeps his word. He keeps his word to you. And if you have a promise that you've been praying, that you feel like God has given you, but you're like, man, I've been praying, I just don't see, hey, you know what? God keeps his word. Go back to the empty tomb. He keeps his word. It looked like it was over. It wasn't over. God is the one who says, this is when it's over. And so if you're a believer, and he's giving you a word, a promise from his word, and it's not over, he'll keep his word. He's good to his word. Easter happened. The resurrection is real. What you choose to do with it is up to you. Let's pray together. So your heads bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment. Thank you so much for your attention. You guys have been super kind. But man, this is the critical moment right here, right now. This is the critical moment. What did God say to you during this time and what are you going to do about it? What did He say to you and what are you going to do about it? If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, that can change for you right now.
If as I've been speaking, it's just like someone's putting their finger right in the middle of your chest going, man, this is you. This is you. That's not me. I don't have that power. That is God. He loves you and he's reaching out to you. Revelations 3.20 says, Jesus said, I stand at the door. It's the door of your heart. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So if you feel like someone's knocking on the door of your heart, that's the Lord. And he's giving you a chance to know him. He's calling out to you now. Not because he needs you, but because he wants you. So if you're here and say, Wes, I'm not sure if I die, I'm going to make heaven. I want to be sure. I want to have Jesus in my life. Then just tell him. That's what prayer is. We get to just open our hearts and talk to God. If you're not sure what to say, let me give you some words. Because somebody loved me enough one day to give me some words. Say, Wes, I know I need Jesus in my life. What do I do? I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer after me. Not out loud. In your heart. Mean the words as your own. It's not magic. It's just the way that God has given us to voice our heart's desires to Him. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer after me in your heart and say this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe that you died for me. That you have life to give me. I want that. I want you. So Jesus, I turn from my sin. I don't want that anymore. I repent. I turn to you. Come into my heart right now. Give me a relationship with you. I trust you. I'm all yours. I'm all yours. Heads bowed and eyes closed and no one looking around. But if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want to remember you in a closing prayer. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. With no one looking around but me, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand. Say, Wes, I just prayed it. I meant it. Here's my hand. Pray for me, man. If that's you, I'm going to invite you to just raise your hand up and say, Wes, I just prayed that prayer. God spoke to me. I invited Christ into my life. Amen. Thank you. Awesome. Anybody else? Say, Wes, put it up nice and high. I don't want to miss anybody. The Bible tells us to make our decisions for Christ public. Your raised hand starts that process. Anybody else? Say, Wes, here's my hand. Pray for me. I just gave my life to Jesus. I was serious. Pray for me. Anybody else? Heavenly Father, I pray for those who raise their hands. God, I pray that you'd help them to know that if they've met business with you, you've met business with them. You're moving into their life even right now. God, give them that assurance. Give them a desire for you and a desire for your word. Last question. You're here and you're a believer. What did God talk to you about and what do you need to do about it? Is there something in your heart, in your life, that you've been struggling, you've not been trusting the Lord with? And God is just wants to remind you of the power of the resurrection that transformed lives, that He is the God who keeps His word. That even though it might look dark now, God is still on the throne. I don't know what God has talked to you about, but I want to just give you a moment, just to silently in your heart, just respond to Him. He brought you here for a reason. Don't waste that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being in this place at this time. God, I ask that uh, man, as we walk out of here, we would be encouraged because of who you are and what you did for us. Jesus, we would never get over the reality that you went to the cross for us and that you rose from the grave for us. God, you keep your word. Lord, that's so encouraging. Thank you, Lord. May our lives continually be transformed. You've committed yourself fully to us. May we commit ourselves to you. Thank you, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church at Buffalo podcast. To connect with us and to get more encouraging biblical content, go to vcb.church.